0: Welcome to The Interview, where we share inspiring career stories and advice from experts and thought leaders on any and all topics, everything from college admissions tips to the latest medical and self-care advice. I'm host Leslie Heaney, and I'm excited to share these compelling stories with you. I hope you'll learn something new and hopefully share a few laughs along the way. Today, we're talking with renowned divorce lawyer, Don Shook. He is one of the most highly regarded matrimonial lawyers in New York and he also happens to be my former boss. A partner at the firm Pryor Cashman, Don is a graduate of Fordham Law School, a member of the International Academy of Family Lawyers, where he sits on the U.S. Chapter Board of Managers, the American Academy of Matrimonial Lawyers, the New York State Bar Association's Family Law Section, and the Dutch Association of Family Lawyers and Divorce Mediators. He has been hailed as a top family law attorney by super lawyers and best lawyers every year since 2007. As a retired matrimonial lawyer myself, I often have friends coming to me with questions or advice. Questions like, can Sophie Turner really take her two children to London without Joe Jonas's consent, are posed to me quite frequently over lunch. Having been out of the practice for almost two decades, I wanted to go straight to the source to offer an overview of a person's rights as they go through a divorce, and just to give listeners a sort of general understanding of the process. I should mention that this episode was recorded remotely, so at moments, the sound is a bit spotty, but it doesn't distract, hopefully, from the, the conversation. Come on. Uh, and with that, let's hear from Don. You know, some people, you know, when they're thinking about getting a divorce, and let's say there is a reason, like you mentioned, you know, someone had an affair, or you discover someone's not who they say they are. I mean, there can be a whole host of things. New York state, you don't, can you explain what no fault is? People really don't, you you don't really need to prove a reason anymore. Is that right?
1: The only thing you have to satisfy is, is is a duration. Someone married for three weeks cannot get divorced based on an irretrievable breakdown of the marriage, which is essentially no fault. Um, So, Back in the days when you were doing this kind of work, um, you had to prove grounds, whether it was adultery or cruelty or abandonment of one kind or another. That you no longer have to do. And that's, you know, most states had gotten to no fault far earlier than New York. And New York is now in that, at least that modern age. New York also doesn't recognize legislated joint custody between parents, whereas in many other states, you start with the presumption of joint custody, which means 50-50 access and equal decision making. You know, that's something that has to be agreed to by the parties. It can't just be ordered by the court without further hearings if one of the parties disagree with that. Um, so New York has played catch up.
0: Yeah, which well, I, re- I remember that. I mean, I remember having, a, having grounds cases if, if a spouse didn't want to get divorced in New York. 20 years ago. But what what states do have the presumption of of custody, the presumption sure, that
1: I'd just- say the vast majority? I think Connecticut does. New Jersey does it's just in, in our tri-state area. Um, most of the New England states, I think, Massachusetts does. And California. I think California is a presumption of joint custody too. New York is one of the last holdouts of um, you have to either agree to joint custody or there is a determination that divides the spheres of influence on someone makes the decision on medical and the other person makes a decision on school, or someone makes a decision on all the major issues. Um, we're moving, you know, The courts are moving away from that because I think there's a recognition that um, when you create that kind of imbalance where one parent in an angry divorce makes all the kid, decisions for the kids... It creates such conflict that um, it's not worth it. So they generally put into place a parent coordinator who will help mediate some decision on um, how to resolve an issue on whether you're going to go to private nursery school or public daycare, um, and that that parent coordinator can break ties if the parties agree to that, so long as they that parent coordinator agrees with one of the parents. So if one parent says, I want to go to a private school on the Upper East Side, and the other one says, I want to go to the local PS Elementary School, uh, the parent coordinator can't say, I'll break the tie by saying you're going to go to Catholic school. They would have to agree with one parent or the other.
0: And uh, would that require some kind of a hearing? Or would you go before the judge for that if there's a disagreement?
1: You know, I think one of the one of the the mystifying things about divorce is that even in my practice, which has a lot of litigation involved in it, very few people see the inside of a courtroom, and the ones who do see the inside of the courtroom, very few of them have a trial on on any issue. It's a it's a very small percentage uh, that end up going to trial e- either on the finances or custody. You know there are instances where you, where there'll be interim relief on or ordering temporary support or a temporary access schedule, but ultimately once people see the inside of the courtroom and see how long it takes to get things accomplished, and the fact that they've turned their personal lives over to a complete stranger. Um, they're more inclined to find some resolution. And at least on the custody front and decisions about access schedules, they're willing to work with mental health professionals who are large, the bulk of the parent coordinators are mental health professionals. Some are lawyers, but, you know, I would suggest if there's higher conflicts or issues regarding people's mental health that you'd want to want a parent coordinator that has a mental health background.
0: Yeah. Well, that makes sense. And then, what about? So, do you want to explain kind of how property gets divided, at least in New York, and the idea of what's marital property and separate property? Because I hear people, you know, say, oh gosh, I have nothing because the, when we bought the house, he put the house in his name. So,
1: first of all, New York is not a titled state, um, it is an equitable distribution state. So, in the old days in New York, the husband classically had all of the assets in his name because he was the working spouse and prior to equitable distribution, he kept all of those assets. And in exchange the wife got some form of alimony and it was often for a lifetime because they weren't getting any of the assets or they'd be allowed to stay in the house until the children reached a certain age and then have to move out. Today, we don't really, unless you have a prenuptial agreement, which has become extremely popular in the last 10 to 15 years, which can regulate around what the law is. But the law is any income that you have during the marriage, any asset that you acquire from that income during the marriage is going to be a marital asset subject to equitable distribution, which the longer the marriage, the more likelihood it's 50-50. And anything that you have prior to the marriage Or anything you inherit from a relative or gifted from a relative would be your separate property, except to the extent you use that and commingle it into a jointly held asset. So it's it's presumed to be a gift of half that you can rebut by saying, well, I just put that $50,000 down payment on the house uh, from my parents, but uh, it's really money I should get back and then we'll divide the rest. Uh, but you'd need to demonstrate, you know, if you just did it for a short period of time, or you had an understanding with your spouse that that down payment was always my separate property only for me, you'd be entitled to get that back. Otherwise, you know, if the marriage goes on for 25 years, money becomes fungible and that initial down payment kind of gets lost in the process if marital funds have been used to pay for everything to keep the house going and renovate it, uh it'll probably end up being divided 50-50 at that point.
0: And then what about um so with that though, let's let's use an example. So you use the apartment, right? Someone buys an apartment with um separate property, right? Property that they've inherited from their family. Um, or property that they earn or uh money that they earn prior to the marriage that they put that they put the down payment uh down on the on that apartment they would either they'd get that back you're saying with the exception of it being just a really incredibly long period of time where the money becomes commingled
1: yeah more often than not if you can trace uh, I'll use an example. You buy a $2 million apartment and uh, you had $500,000 before you got married and you use it as a down payment using your separate property. And you put put it in your joint names. Uh, um, that million and a half in value that it, that it grew to would be marital, but the $500,000, generally you're going to be entitled to get back unless there. You know, but if you're married for 25 years, it kind of loses its separate property character. It, certainly, if, if you get divorced in three weeks, um, you'll get all of that money back. <laughs> right,
0: exactly. Like your new client there. So what about what about maintenance, maintenance or um, spousal support? How does that get um, calculated?
1: So, you know, the old days, it was alimony and uh, it could be forever. Today, we have formulas, and I won't bore you with the details, but the formulas go to both um, the amount of support and the duration. You know, it, it used to be we had a rule of thumb that it would be 50% of the length of the marriage would be the longest that you would get support. So if you were married for 10 years, you'd get five years of support. The legislature has changed that. So if you're married for less than, say, 15 years, the most you would get would be thirty percent of the length of the marriage. Uh, that what's, what's the, the
0: reasoning behind that? Uh, the mm-hmm. reasoning
1: behind it is it's meant to be rehabilitative maintenance, not a lifestyle source of support. With the understanding that you're also going to be receiving an equal or equitable share of the other assets, so you should be in a position to be able to do something. It, if you're even in a in a 25-year marriage, you'd only be entitled to support for half the length of that marriage. Uh, under the statute, there are exceptions if you're disabled or there are no assets to divide. The, you know, it's a guideline for the courts to use. It's not set in stone, but generally, courts try to stay within those guidelines. Uh, within a year or so, um, in resolving cases, and certainly when lawyers are negotiating a settlement, which happens most of the time, they look at those guidelines and try to fall with a duration of support that that covers that amount in the guidelines. As to the dollar amount, um, you know, it's really a function of how much income is available and what people's expenses are. The idea is to try to maintain, to the extent possible, the marital lifestyle. But the marital lifestyle, you know, if you're making five hundred thousand dollars a year, and your expenses after after taxes are are five hundred thousand dollars a year. Um, then dividing it into two separate households is not going to work. So the the, the there's also guidelines for that and caps for income levels, uh, both for maintenance and child support. So for example, if you look at child support and someone makes a million dollars a year, if you have two children, 25% of some portion of that income would be attributable to child support. Generally in New York, Courts will go up to three hundred fifty, four hundred, maybe four hundred and fifty thousand of that million dollar income in setting child support, and there's a, an additional calculation regarding maintenance. If you're making fourteen million dollars a year, maybe it'll go up to a million dollars or more. Uh, but um, it's really meant to stay within a certain guidelines. There's certainly exceptions to that. I'm sure you've read about them in the newspaper. Uh, But when you're above a certain income level, uh, the guidelines are far less relevant, and it's really a function of what are the expenses been for the family and the kids, and just pay that amount. Or look at the assets that you're going to receive as the non-moneyed spouse, and what income is that going to generate to cover your expenses, and then the balance could be paid by the moneyed spouse.
0: Right. Well, that makes sense. I mean, I, um, what if, you know, there are circumstances and we had a couple of clients like this and I have friends whose husbands or wives have done things like this, where they're in the process of getting a divorce, um, or they know the other spouse is thinking about filing and they switch jobs, right? They go from making a million dollars a year to two fifty. They want to become a professor. Um, how does the court handle that? I mean, it's a drastic change in lifestyle, uh, the other spouse doesn 't control that decision necessarily, but they're living with the with its outcome what do you uh, how would you handle that or what's the what's the process there or let's say that they lose their job during the course of the of the uh the case and they're looking for a job and the the judge is trying to set um support
1: well a judge is going to look at what you're in, in setting support you just don't look at the income you look at the The ability to earn and the ability to earn is measured about what you've historically earned. So, if you've historically earned a million dollars a year and just decided to give yourself a pay cut, um, courts are not very sympathetic to that. If, however, you earned a million dollars a year and you've aged out in an industry or your company went bankrupt and you don't have your job, because of an involuntary action, nothing that you caused yourself, they're going to expect you to look for other work, comparable work, and show a long history of efforts to find comparable work before they're going to let you off the hook from what you were previously earning. But if you're in a situation where you've gone from a million dollars a year to suddenly someone says, I think I want to become a public school teacher and earn $75,000 a year. Um, if that's gone on for two or three years before you file for divorce, you're probably going to be stuck with the seventy five thousand dollar a year salary level in determining support. So, um, but if on the other hand you decide to do it after you filed for divorce, the court is not going to be at all sympathetic to that. You know, it, particularly if there are children involved, because you know if you have children involved, you t- typically don't have the luxury of just cutting back on your income when there are school bills to pay and education to, to get for kids.
0: Yeah, no, 100%. I know often when people are going through a divorce, both spouses will stay in, under the same roof so they don't, as they don't want to lose kind of um, you know, a- access to the apartment but also ownership of it. Can you explain that? I mean, people want to kick their spouse out because they're, they're fighting and it's uncomfortable, but you can't legally do that. Right. And um, there's also some some strategy or thought behind that.
1: Well, um, you know, the conventional wisdom of every lawyer to a client is stay in the house until you have some interim arrangement in place, both as to access to the kids and how money is going to be spent. And, you know, if you're the one who wants to get out of the relationship and the other spouse doesn't, um, by being around, it's a it's a regular reminder that I want to get divorced, and you can't just bury your head in the sand and you have to do something about it. Right. Um, That's true. But on the other hand, um, you can't force a sale of the house until there's a divorce judgment. Um, I have a client now who's paying an exorbitant sum um, in carrying costs each month. But because the divorce is not final and the wife does not want to move out, uh, he is paying these enormous sums each month to keep his wife and children in an apartment that they neither need nor can any longer afford because a judge doesn't have the authority to direct a sale until the divorce judgment is final. Um, In that instance, the wife has exclusive possession and one of the reasons for Her getting that exclusive possession is she was constantly threatening to call the police to have the husband thrown out. So when you talk about how do you get a spouse out of the house, um, by simply saying you want to get divorced doesn't do that. You either have to show some level of domestic violence or threats uh, that make it unsafe for the two of you to live together. Um, Otherwise, you're going to be stuck together until one of you decide, I can't take it anymore and I'm going to move out.
0: Yeah. Yeah. All right. What about some other assets? Like let's talk, so we talked about the apartment and separate property, perhaps going in, into that and how one would get credit for that. What about things like brokerage accounts, pensions? H- how are those assets handled?
1: You know, if you have a retirement account prior to getting married, you would get credit as separate property for that value uh, up to the date of the marriage. And then after that, those, those retirement assets would be divided typically by what's called a qualified domestic relations order so that if you had a million dollars in a retirement account and you were dividing it 50-50, you would divide it in kind so that each would get the same stock uh, cost basis for stock and you'd each have $500,000 and it would be it would be reserved as a retirement account, not subject to taxation by transferring half to one spouse. Brokerage accounts... Uh, same thing. You can do the distributions in kind. You don't have to liquidate those securities and incur capital gains. You can just transfer them in kind uh, if they're separate property that you can demonstrate. I had this uh, Goldman Sachs account before we got married, and it had X dollars in it. You get credit for that X dollars before you divide the balance of the account. Um, it's really not that difficult. You know, the, the more difficult assets to divide or where someone is a partner in a hedge fund or someone's a partner in a law firm or somebody has a business that needs to be valued. And there you're dealing with values that are, I wouldn't say made up, but they are hypothetical values. For example, if I'm a partner in a law firm where I have equity in the firm, I couldn't sell my equity to any of my partners or anybody else under the partnership agreement. But the value of my partnership because of my earnings from that partnership will be valued and um, a simple example, if someone makes a million dollars. As a partner law firm and the typical lawyer of my stage would only make $500,000. That excess amount of five hundred dollars would then be capitalized and turned into a couple million dollar number for which uh, my spouse would be entitled to a claim. Same is true for a business. We have business valuators in these cases all the time that are valuing um, uh, the Usually, it's on a discounted cash flow basis of what those businesses are worth. And it, you could have someone who generates a lot of income from that business. And, you know, in fairness, it's going to continue to generate it. And, and there's a value to that that's independent of what support you're going to get from that business. And I think those are the, the particularly difficult assets to divide. Bank accounts, brokerage accounts, houses, those are easy to get a fair market value or you just sell them. But businesses in which you are a minority partner and don't have the ability to sell, uh, but they do have a value attached to them, are much harder to buy.
0: And then how do you, you have someone come and appraise that? And then there's a negotiation, probably yeah. both sides. Yeah, I mean,
1: if you're in court, there's usually a neutral appointed. Um, It's becoming increasingly popular that each side gets their own expert to do a valuation, and then you try to mediate a resolution between those two values. Um, And when you're dealing with a business, unlike a bank account, which is typically divided 50-50, the marriage is of any length, um, understanding that you're dealing with a more hypothetical value for a business – the non-titled spouse's share of that business is typically less than 50 percent, you know, anywhere from 20 to 35 or 40 percent.
0: What about so you know, you hear about sort of strategy and, you know, when do I file or should I file? Is there any benefit or do you have any opinion about whether uh, it's more beneficial to be the person that's actually filing for the divorce versus you know, I, I, the I, other
1: I think it's it's kind of an emotional thing. I think um, if if you're the spouse that feels that you've been wronged in some way, you want to be the plaintiff, not the defendant. But from a lawyer's point of view, it makes absolutely no difference. Uh, right. and, and the only difference it makes is if you end up going to trial, which happens in so few cases, the plaintiff goes first and you go second. That's, right. that's really – so either you get the first word or the last word. But um, – and from a lawyer's point of view, it, it doesn't matter. Um, some people like walking around saying, "I sued my husband right. for divorce uh, because of X, Y, and Z." Uh, but beyond that, it, it, from a lawyer's point of view, it doesn't really matter.
0: What about you? Talked about particularly being practicing in New York. You've got clients who are from all over the world. They have homes in different states. How do you handle that? How is that? Let's say you divide your time between New York and Florida, but you your client, you know, is hiring you and wants to file in New York. Do the New York laws apply to distribution of the property in the other states?
1: Yes. Um, So unless you have a prenup that says otherwise, but you have to find the state in which you have jurisdiction. Um, If you're residing primarily in New York, filing New York tax returns, but have a house in Florida or a place in Spain, New York is a perfectly appropriate form in which to divide assets. And that would be dividing just not the assets that are located here, but located anywhere in the world. Um, And New York law would apply to that division. So sometimes you get people who race to file for divorce. You know, the big popular thing, you know, not even from state to state, but a very popular thing during the pandemic was – A lot of well-off Manhattanites with homes in the Hamptons got the bright idea that it's a lot cheaper to get divorced in Suffolk County, and they've got a house in Suffolk County, so I'm going to file for divorce then. Uh, Or I have a house in Connecticut, and it's more favorable to me in terms of support. So they would file in their second home. Um, that often works. It doesn't work, however, when there are kids involved and the kids end up back in school in New York and you haven't resolved the custody issues because that typically is going to be resolved in the state where the kids go to school and live primarily. But on the asset divisions, there's been a lot of cases out there. Um, and we often have jurisdictional disputes on – just finishing up one. I hope it's finished now between New York and California on – who was physically served first. And um, and it's kind of unusual that just the, 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 the moment of time of just being 20 minutes ahead of the other person and serving them with divorce papers gives one state an advantage over the other in terms of dividing the assets.
0: And so in that case, in the case you just used of the, of the person being served and somebody wants jurisdiction in California, California's community property, right um, and new York or and the other client wants New York New York then establishes jurisdiction and says to that defendant that they have to appear in court in New York it's, That's it's, correct. It's even, even if the defendant serves the other uh, spouse with papers from California, that becomes moot at that point
1: well if if New York was the first place where a party was served. Uh, even though they have homes in California and homes in New York, um, New York would assume jurisdiction and the assets would be divided under equitable distribution law rather than California's community property law. So, you know, it's, it's a combination of who serves first and which is the more convenient form. You know, it could be that you have a rental apartment here in New York and you're here doing a Broadway show. And you get suddenly get served here, but the kids go to school in California, all the assets are in California, your homes are in California. Uh under forum non convenience, the case, even though New York got started first and somebody was found and served in New York in their rental apartment, the case New York could decline jurisdiction and send it back to California. To be I have a
0: friend who who recently, um, her soon to be ex, um, left New York and went to Europe um, Mm -hmm. back to the country where he was originally from. And I, and she initially was panicked that he was gone and there'd be no way that New York would have any jurisdiction over him. He wouldn't have to appear. Can you speak to that? What happens when people leave the country? And how do you go about? Well,
1: it's it's kind of, well, tracking them down. um, You you couldn't get a private investigator or presumably you could figure out where somebody is by looking at your phone. But in terms of in terms of uh, in terms of serving that person, even though they may have gone to France to live, um, if you're living in New York with the kids, uh, you can start an action here and get him served in France personally, sometimes you have to get letters rogatory in which to do that. And you can drag him back. You know, the easiest thing is he comes to pick up the kids for a holiday visit and he served physically in New York. So it doesn't matter that he's moved to France. And in cases where he knows never to come back to the jurisdiction, you might have to get a court order to get him served in France, but the action would take place here. You know, you need to kind of make sure that you don't that he doesn't satisfy the French jurisdictional requirements and can bring a divorce action there, um, because then you have the same issue of which is the more convenient form in which to do this.
0: And what about I mean, you often hear people saying, I want to get divorced, but I don't have the money to hire a lawyer. Um, How does the non non moneyed spouse I mean, I know the answer to this question, obviously, but I want you to, you to expand on it about how does a non-moneyed spouse go about, you know, retaining a lawyer and beginning that process if they um, don't have the funds to do it?
1: Well, the New York courts recognize this concept of non-moneyed spouse with the understanding that we're equitable distribution. So if there are other assets available um to pay for legal fees uh, the court will try to level that playing field and make the moneyed spouse contribute to the other person's fees it's not the ideal situation to be in as the non-moneyed spouse but you know in most instances people are able to put together enough for a retainer and then they have to make if they can't negotiate something with the more moneyed spouse's counsel they then have to make an application to court and generally they'll get some fees they probably won't be dollar for dollar and not will the lawyer's fees be paid all along the way. They may have to wait until the house is sold or a business is valued and divided before they they get all of their fees. But the court is sensitive to the fact that everybody should have legal representation for sure, whether you have money or don't have money.
0: And then what about you'll hear this, too, about, you know, you talked about, you know, people going to court and, and very few cases end up in the courtroom and people realize they don't want their future decided by a stranger. But if you were, let's say it's a, it's a easy divorce where both sides agree to, to, um, the custody arrangement and it's a pretty straightforward, uh, uh, division of assets. I mean, how much does that cost or how much time, I guess, how much time would it, does it take? And then what's the What's the cost? I know you can't put a price tag on it, but people want to sort of roughly know what they're, what they're getting into. And I guess it depends on who you hire and where you are. And-
1: well, look, You can go online and get a form and fill out the form and spend the filing fees are you know, a few hundred dollars. Uh, and the software is probably another few hundred. But, you know, I think the risk you run in that, and I, I think again, for the three week marriage, it's yeah. a perfect way to go. Um, everybody's keeping what they have. There are no children. There's no need to spend a lot of money on lawyers. However, if you do have assets and you do have kids who are gonna, you're going to have ongoing responsibilities for, I think you're really being short-sighted if you don't hire a lawyer. Uh, doesn't necessarily have to be um, – At my price point, but there are certainly less expensive lawyers out there. So you understand when you're signing what the tax ramifications are of, 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 oh, gee, I'll give you all of my retirement account and I'll keep all the cash. Well, that's not really a fair trade because the cash has already been taxed. You're not going to pay tax on it. And the moment you take a dollar out of the retirement account, 40% of it is going to go to taxes. Um, you need to understand um, that there's fluidity in the way kids grow up so that um, you can't just have a schedule that says, I'll see you every Sunday afternoon and expect to develop a relationship with a a child. You need to kind of think through with somebody, it could be a mental health professional, you know, how do I establish a relationship with a a kid going back and forth to two different homes? Um, You need to think about... um, can I support myself, and if i can 't support myself, how much do I think i need and it 's really surprising the number of people we, we have these form statutory form net worth statements which list every conceivable expense you could possibly encounter in your life, plus a list of what your income is and all the assets and it can be very mystifying to a lot of people. You can do it on your own and um, and, and and the simplest of divorces. I wouldn't discourage someone from doing it on their own, but it's, you know, it's like doing your own, uh, shoulder surgery. I'm not sure I would do it on my own. I think, you know, I would find somebody to, to, to kind of guide me through the process. And in terms of the cost of that, if it's a simple, relatively straightforward divorce, you know, could be anywhere from 10 to $20,000 for your fees. If it's, contentious and litigated. It could be hundreds of thousands, if not more. Uh, it, 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 but part of that is within your control in terms of how much you want to fight with your spouse. And part of it is the reason you're getting divorced is your spouse, in your mind, is such an asshole that um, it's impossible to resolve anything with them. So it's going to be a high conflict, expensive proceeding.
0: What about mediation? When is mediation appropriate? Um, Or when would you advise that that would be a a viable path to take? I think
1: mediation is a great kind of holistic resolution of ending a relationship. I think the tricky part of it is typically when you're ending a relationship, seldom are both people in the same place. You know, typically you have somebody who says, you know, I've checked out of this relationship long ago or I'm now involved with somebody else and the other person is in denial or is angry and is not in the same position. But if if you have a situation where both parties are ready to get divorced, both parties want to find a solution, and both parties are equally – maybe not sophisticated, but at least knowledgeable about the finances, um, you can have a very effective mediation. What I often see, however, in a mediation, because you're not in there with lawyers, you can consult with lawyers and you should consult with lawyers, but you're basically in there with your soon-to-be ex-spouse. And if you couldn't have a level conversation with that spouse during the marriage, the likelihood of one of them dominating the other during the mediation is a real possibility. So, uh, you know, if you feel you can hold your own – because the mediator's job is not to defend you, is to kind of get the two of you to reach an agreement. And I've seen some mediated agreements where spouses have just been kind of browbeaten into doing things just for the sake of I mediated a a settlement agreement. Not necessarily beneficial to them, but – but if if you're capable if you're in the position that you're ready to get it done and you can stand up for your rights i highly encourage it because ultimately it's your life it's not you know it's not some third party lawyer's life or a judge's judge's life that we're trying to resolve you know your life better than, presumably better than anyone
0: and that would be so you could you could with mediation you'd be in the room just with the mediator but you can certainly as you said you can you can um seek counsel from an attorney before, maybe even during, it's not just done in one session, right? There are are multiple sessions remediation. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And, 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 you know, quite typically a mediator is going to say, I'm going to explain to you what the law is on equitable distribution and support. And I'm going to explain to you, you know, some schedules for kids when you're living apart but ultimately you need to hire a lawyer to not only consult with during this process but when i prepare the agreement i want that lawyer to review it cuz i want to put their name in that agreement so that they so that i know that you've spoken to a lawyer and that you understand your rights because i'm not representing you and so lawyers ultimately do get involved and you know quite often look i've been doing this for a while and so i know a lot of lawyers in new york and quite often You can tell by the lawyer who's representing the other side whether you can sit down and mediate it yourself, whether they're capable of a reasonable position. You don't really even need a mediator. You might get stuck on one issue like the value of the business that might need to be mediated, but you could probably resolve the custody and access issues. Or you could resolve who stays in the house and when it eventually gets sold. Um, But there may be some sticky issues where you can just direct one or two of those to a mediator rather than to have to do the whole thing, or maybe not even use a mediator at all. Cause it just then becomes an additional cost.
0: What about uh, debts? What about debts when you're going to, to divide property? Um, obviously a mortgage would be resolved when the house is sold, the property sold, but what about student loans uh, or any other debt the person had Would that? That would then go and be applied to the spouse that incurred the debt initially, or what if, how does that work?
1: Well, student loan, presumably you'd have before you got married. So that would be your separate liability. But, you but know, it's, if it's, like, it's, it's for children's
0: sure sure. college or something and you, you co-sign. Oh,
1: well, then, then, then it's, it's going to be a marital debt that you're both going to have to share in, in some way. I mean, typically the more moneyed spouse would take a larger share of that or all of it in exchange for something. You know, we get a lot of credit card debt that gets wrapped up in some of these cases, but um, and tax, tax debts that accumulate during the course of the marriage. But if it emanates from an activity during the marriage, it's a marital liability that would have to get resolved, either out of the assets that are being divided or some pay, payout going forward, either in the form of reduced support or something like that.
0: What if a spouse, you know, in the lead up to the filing, you know, is, you know, spending money on a, on a girlfriend or boyfriend or, you know, and just wasting assets without the permission of the other spouse. Um, how is that handled? How does a judge look at that? Um, Do you, you get know, credit if, if, it's ju-
1: if it's just like, you know, a few dinners out, Uh, or an occasional trip, you know, there can be certainly an adjustment. It's called marital waste. You know, I just finished a case where a guy was spending $10,000 a week on phone sex. Right. that's clearly something.
0: He doesn't Uh, have a problem. That's not a problem.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And and believe it or not, it wasn't even the reason they were getting divorced. But – but, but you know, that kind of waste, which runs up into the hundreds of thousands of dollars, clearly a judge is going to say, that's your responsibility. It's going to come out of your share of the assets. It's not going to come 50-50 out of anybody else's share. So that's the kind of the clearest example of marital waste that uh, – I mean, plus this guy was um, – it, it was a dominatrix. And it, it, I could never imagine how you could – how that could be work over the telephone, but uh, even so, an even greater waste it seemed to the judge when uh, when he was <laughs> faced with that issue. But if you big gambling debts, or you know th- the the more interesting kind of debts that exist is you take a million dollars and you think oh there's a great new startup. But you don't tell your wife about it and you invest the million dollars in the startup. And it seemed like it made sense, but it just goes bust. And how is that liability shared? Is, is it, it's clearly he used marital funds. I'm using he in this case, marital funds to make the investment. Had he made money on it, it would have been a marital asset. But he ended up losing it all. And you get a lot of cases where people are saying, well, I didn't know anything about startups. I don't even know what the startup was. But had that million dollars still existed, I would have gotten $500,000 of it. So he should be 100% responsible of it. And that's a tighter question. You know, uh, uh, if you then look to see how, how much that spouse had been investing in, in other things and how the, how the family had profited from that. So right. if you can demonstrate that then, you know, it's just a bad investment like other things were good investments.
0: So you talked a little bit about, you know, um how in other states there's a presumption of custody right being 50-50. How is it how is it usually um determined? What factors does a judge look at when they make that determination? And then are there certain visitation schedules Um, in your mind that are more common these days than I know there's week on, week off. There's, you know, is it five days and then five days? Um, What are you seeing and, and, um, and how to, how do you, you know, or how does a judge really go about thinking about who gets to decide what and who's, who's living with who?
1: I think the first question is, can you really exercise the time? You know, everybody should be entitled to at least have time with their kids if they can really do it. But if they're really busy or they have to travel or um, they're, they they haven't exhibited any real childcare during the marriage, it's harder to just say, let's do 50-50. So you then try to build around a weekend that encourages people to do it. I've had... Clients certainly in the finance area who've been working like crazy and seldom saw their kids because they had the flexibility of sneaking in late at night and seeing them or taking them to school in the morning, but really didn't spend much time parenting. But once they had a schedule and whether it's a schedule that's the popular one is Monday, Tuesday, mom, Wednesday, Thursday, dad, alternate the weekends and then flip it around the other way. That's another way to get to 50-50. It may be too much back and forth for the kids. But I've had lots of, particularly fathers, who have a set schedule, which could be, look, I want every Thursday to Monday, every other Thursday to Monday, and then a dinner during the week uh, or an overnight during the week. And, and the wife would say, I, I don't think he'll ever even do that. And I think if you actually have a set schedule, um, people actually become better parents in divorce because they actually stick to the schedule because they don't have that flexibility of seeing the child anytime they want. Uh, but I do think the, the trend certainly is towards 50-50, and I think um, you have to figure out that you can arrange your work schedule and that's more possible now that people are doing more stuff remotely than they ever have before that you can actually do it. You probably need childcare to go back and forth between households to help make it a little bit easier. But I think that's certainly the trend and you know, I hope it continues. I think it's very helpful
0: to the kids. I mean, what about moving to another state? Sometimes you'll hear a spouse as a job opportunity um, and perhaps that's that's the mom or the dad and has the children with them more often, what kind of criteria would a court look at to determine whether they can do that? It's
1: In New York, it's very difficult. It's very difficult to move. Um, You're pretty much tethered to where the kid's school is, where they have habitually resided. I had a horrible relocation case where the wife moved out west a place to live with her family during the pandemic. Enrolled the kids in school there. Father was a very erratic character, but they had gone to public school in New York City. And after a year and a half of living out there, there was a trial um, where the forensic evaluator in, in custody cases, the forensic evaluator will say, well, what's in the kids' best interest? Should they be living in New York where the father is and the mother?" certainly has the ability to live, or should they? Is the father be forced to come back and forth or the children travel back and forth, you know, across the country to see their father. And more often than not, you're going to find, unless there's domestic violence or something like that, that the kids are going to be ordered back to New York. Yeah. It's very New York-centric. And, uh, it's a, and to me, it, you know, it's antiquated, you know much in the same way New York was behind the times in terms of uh no fault divorce, the world is so much broader now, and the way people communicate virtually now is so much so much different and impactful. You'll have a grandson who has kind of grown up on facetimes and zooms yeah. uh, to see people and can actually connect in a way yeah. that we think unless we have that physical touch. Um, there's no connection whatsoever. So I think it's an area, relocation is one that has to change because people are so much more mobile now. And, the, and, and particularly now that you can work remotely uh, for a lot of places, you know, uh, people have jobs in New York who live in California. I mean, there are, there are certainly ways to accommodate it better than the courts are accommodating in New York now. That, but it's very difficult to relocate unless the other person agrees. And typically they agree uh, when it means, okay, I, I have to pay less in child support, or I get all summer, or I get all the holidays, uh, I get all the fun time. And that's the kind of trade you have to do in order to be able to relocate if the other person is resisting. But I think that this is a body of law that's got to change now that people are being as mobile as they are.
0: What about what? what age is a parent... Um financially responsible for their child
1: twenty one in New York State, most states are eighteen. Uh, New York is twenty one but you are but for custody purposes, you're emancipated at age eighteen, but you have a support obligation until twenty one and really, at now age 10, 11, and twelve, if you have a custody dispute. Uh, maybe even younger. Uh, I've seen it as early as young as five and six. Lawyers are appointed for the kids that will yeah. advocate the children's position. And um, you know, you can have a eight or nine year old say, "I don't want to see dad or I don't want to see mom anymore," and they'll advocate that in court. Um, so kids do have a lot of say now in where they live and how they live. Um, and I'm not sure how good that is ultimately.
0: The standard still is a judge will look at what's, quote, in the best interest of the child. Which That's a pretty- the
1: standard. But, you know, yeah. what does that mean? I know. Means, I know. It's you know very broad. It means a lot of things to a lot of people. But um, and, you know, and, and, and I don't say it glibly because, you know, what, what's, what was maybe in your best interest as a child is probably different than what's in the best best interest of your children today because the world has changed so dramatically. Yeah. There are certain fundamental things that remain the same, you know, in terms of attending school and staying out of trouble and not doing drugs and things of that nature that are pretty commonplace. But best best interest goes a long way. I mean, what's in the very best interest of all kids is to avoid a high conflict divorce. Yeah. Because that stays with them forever, impacts their future relationships, and ability to marry in the future. And there seems to be a lot of data to support that. You know, it's the parents that are capable to put on the fake smile and not badmouth the other parent that makes the healthiest child in that circumstance. Well,
0: let's talk about that. So you have a client that comes in and, and you, you consult with them and they decide they want to move forward. What kind of advice do you give them about, that part of the puzzle about how to—I guess for starters—how do they talk to their kids about it? Um, do you recommend that that they speak with a family therapist first? What what kind of direction do you give clients? I think own? if you if you if you
1: have someone who knows your family, um, it, 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 there are certain strategies to employ, and and the, and the most important strategy um, to employ is. Kind of a unified front, number one, that it's not somebody's fault. It's we've decided this is best for our family. Uh, it's without bad mouthing somebody and let them know that really the adults are in charge. Because they don't really care. I mean, all they want to know is where am I going and when am I going there, and am I still going to be able to go to my same school? Do I have to? If we sell our house, where are we going to go? They want to know that the parents are not just so busy fighting with each other that they've forgotten that the kids need that reassurance of you know some sense of security. So, absolutely, if. if it comes down to telling children that we're separating or divorcing, look, kids are intuitive. In most instances, if they see their parents throwing things, screaming and yelling and storming out of the house all the time, you know, a lot of times they're relieved when they hear this, but they would like to hear it as a consistent message from both parents. And often mental health professionals are good at helping frame that.
0: Yeah, that's good. That's a, yeah, for sure. I mean, to me, Having been a child of divorce myself, actually, for me, I, I never, I never, saw, I never saw any fighting. I just didn't see really any communication at all. So um, it was a, a bit of a surprise, but not a, not necessarily an unwelcome one, but I, but being consistent about that. And as you said, talking about, you know, the, the elements um, of kids' lives that they care about and making sure that they feel safe and loved by both parents is the, is the key you know, I think there for sure. And then what about, you know, if you it's the right time you consult with a lawyer. What should people be looking for in a matrimonial lawyer? I mean, what are there red flags? I mean, what, what, what kind of questions should they ask? Um, I think you don't want a yes person
1: um, that said, oh, "My husband's a bad guy. We're going to take care of him." You know, you yes. want to be able to kind of get behind that in a way. You want to, I mean, you got to be a, a reasonable listener. Listener, I think a good listener. But I think you also have to provide the reassurance that you know what you're doing when you're taking the next step and explaining it, because a lot of it, and particularly when you're going to court for the first time, if you've never been, you know, kind of understand how that process works. And I think the best way to kind of do that is interview more than one lawyer. I mean, you know, you get a, it's, it's very helpful that a friend of yours has used a particular lawyer or your, your sister knows of a great person that, that could represent you. But uh, I think ultimately it behooves you to do a little shopping around and um, test out what other people have to say. I don't think you're going to hear that they have radically different views of how the law is going to affect their case, but they may have a very different view on how to approach your case, whether it is, you know, in, in some instances, Know you're trying to find a resolution if you can. In other instances, where somebody is coming in and they're just emptying the bank accounts and uh, filling up the credit cards with phone sex, you have to act immediately. And it's and it's it, and it's you're fearful that if you don't act immediately, there won't be anything left to divide because they'll find a way to have siphoned off all the money, taken it offshore so you have to be able to act decisively and explain why you're acting decisively but if you if you if you're not faced with that situation you really want to treat this as getting these people to the next place in their life which is often not easy because they're coming with a lot of baggage in a bad relationship
0: well you hear i'll, I'll hear friends that will go they'll come back and say That he or she lawyer said, you know, we're going to go, we're going to get him or we're going to get her or whatever. And I, you know, depending on what's happened to lead them to that point, they like hearing that at the same time, what I say to them is that's not necessarily what you, what you want in an attorney, right? Because that means you might be dragging something out or being combative over something that you're going to end up in the same place, but it's going to be a much rockier, more upsetting road for you and for your kids. Um, and much more expensive. Yeah. And much more expensive, hundred percent. Um, Mr. Shook, we've got um, you know, we're, we're we're like I think past an hour almost, considering our some of our, our earlier start. Any parting advice for people, or any any lessons learned um, from your? How many years have you been practicing? I mean, I, I worked with you 20 years ago. So it's got to be actually don't do that. Then you'll reveal you, you don't need to reveal that. But no, a no long- but it's funny.
1: This is my kind of my third career in the law. So um, it took me a while to figure out family law was right for me. I wasn't what I did first. It wasn't what I did at all. Uh, I never took a family law class in law school. I I just kind of stumbled into it, and I have been doing it for more than 25 years. And it's, uh, you know, it's an amazing thing to see a client who comes in for the first time who is shell-shocked and unsure about what to do and being able to kind of guide them through to the conclusion of that and actually get a Christmas card uh, to know that they've gone off and done Something with their lives. I think it's. A, I think it's a great thing to do. And what what I would say as parting advice is, you know, ask around before you do it. Make sure that it's really over. And particularly if they're kids, do everything you can to try to keep it together. You know, I know there's all kinds of studies that say a separated, quiet household is better than a together household that's got friction in it. I'm not even sure that's true because, look, I think kids can tune all of that out. Uh, I think that you really want to be able to say to yourself, I tried to preserve this relationship as best I could. Uh, I didn't just give up on it after three weeks, Um, although in that case, this woman had a very good reason to do that. Um, you've, You've really given it a fair shot before you go ahead and do it because it will be life changing for you. You'll be checking that box for the rest of your life on marital status, whether you've ever been divorced, you'll be checking that box and probably having to show not that that's a reason to stay married, but, um, you know, it's, it, it's a real life changing event. And so you want to be certain that when you do it, um, you get the best advice you can. And that advice is not just from a lawyer. You know, you need somebody else to sound off with whether that's your therapist or your cousin or your, parent, somebody else whose judgment you trust before you make that decision.
0: Don, thank you so much. It's so great to see you. So yeah, fun to talk. To yeah, it's, it is I good. I mean, getting the, uh, the 30,000 feet. I mean, these are the questions that people are, are asking, you know, at uh, my age, younger, older. Um, it's, it's amazing. People really don't know. What, um, it's
1: surprising because it's so easily available on the internet now, you would think that. Um, and then, you know, that's a good, that's definitely a good jumping off point.
0: Um, that's true. Yeah, that's, a, that's another point to sort of re- read up and get a lay of the land before you uh, even before you need to go see a lawyer. But, um, but I really appreciate you taking the time. Absolutely. It was fun. A huge thanks to Don Shook, again, for joining us. We hope you learned a little something, had some fun along the way. And as always, thanks for listening to The Interview. If you enjoy the show, I hope you'll subscribe, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, and follow us on Instagram at The Interview with Leslie Heaney. A new podcast is released every Wednesday. And until then, this is Leslie Heaney, and don't forget to join The Interview.